Thanks, team, for leading our thoughts to love and the love of God's never failing. Good song. Well, we're very much looking forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ at the Christmas Eve service. So if you've come here today hoping to hear the story of Christmas, you'll need to come to the Christmas Eve service. We're going to tell the story, and then we're going to celebrate the story. It's going to be great. Today, we're going to be finishing our series on love from 1 Corinthians 13. And this message is about love's eternal future. And it is entitled, The Best is Yet to Come. My thoughts about uh, eternity are much more personal to me this week. I sent a note out through our uh, Bethel E! News Uh, sharing about what happened to me last Sunday. And if you didn't get the note, it means you need to sign up for the Bethel E-News so you can find out what's going on. But uh, this last Sunday night, I was involved in, you know, in the middle of this blizzard, I was involved in a a head-on collision. And I've been in fender benders before over the years, but I have never been in a uh, violent accident like, like that one was. And I had, it was like, it was just white out, and I had basically a millisecond is all, all the warning that I had, and that's probably just as well because you don't want to have to think about that, but just a millisecond. And, um, and the next thing I remember what is I came to and the airbags had deflated. There was an awful smell in the in the car, and I just had I just had this thought I was just in a bad accident. And you know, I'm I, just kind of laying there. All I felt like a noodle, and I just started. You know, I moved my fingers, and they seemed to move okay. And I moved my toes, and. They seemed to move okay, and I kind of moved my legs, and I, I was just starting to see what is bad here, and everything was working okay. And so I, uh, I just sat there and, and hoped for somebody to come to our aid, um, and somebody did. And I tell you what, when you're in a moment like that, how thankful you are to see the, uh, the, 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 the blue and red lights uh, and for somebody to come knock on the window and say, are you okay? Um, so I'm very thankful for the emergency crews that came to um, my rescue. And truly, it is by God's grace that I am still here. And as a testimony to how the Lord protected me, I want to show you a picture of my car just to give you an evidence of what happened. So... It was bad, and uh, cars totaled, and um, that's the least of my concerns, although I did like that car, but I, uh, <laughs> I'll never drive that car again. Um, and out of that, I had, my neck was sore, my back was sore, um, they thought maybe I broke my nose, and I don't think I had, it seems to be doing better, um, I've got a nasty burn on my on my wrist from the airbag, which I've heard about those burns. And let me tell you, they are bad. (laughs) It hurts. And this is the only thing that really hurts at this point. So you'll see me kind of keeping this arm up. If it goes down, it really hurts. Um, 
But I just want to say thank you to the Lord publicly for his uh, protection. I, my life has never been more precarious than it was in that moment. And I, uh, I am really thankful uh, to be here. Last night I was, I was driving up for our Saturday service and I just, you know, it was dark out and I was coming up Broadway and the lights are shining on the church. And I just was, I was like, I'm still here. You know, even a week later, I, I was weepy on Monday. It shakes you up. I don't know if you've ever been in a violent accident. It shakes you up. And I was, I was shaken by it. And so I am so thankful that I can stand before you today open God's word again and have this time of worship together with you. Um, and uh, I remember last week, and I probably not every Sunday, but the majority of Sundays, I think about my death. I honestly do, especially before third service. I think about it. And I, <laughs> I, because I, I think to myself, if I die this week, this is the last message I'll ever give, and I want it to be a winner. And I kind of used that thought many, many weeks to kind of psych myself up for third service again. And I remember thinking that last week. I had that very specific thought. This might be the last one, and I, I want to go, go out with a winner. And little did I know how close it was to being that. So I just want to say thank you. So many of you have sent me notes and, and, and email and Facebook and all of that. I'll, I probably won't reply to most of them, but just say thank you publicly, and I'm glad to be here right now. So praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, in God's providence, the week after the accident, the text of Scripture is about the future and what continues and what doesn't. And I got to tell you, I'm a little more interested in this than I was a week ago. So, I hope this series on love has been a blessing to you. It has to me. i got to tell you, as we've worked our way slowly through this description of love and all these different words of what love is and what love is not, pretty much every week, in fact, I can honestly say every week that I've been doing these messages, I have just, it's been convicting to me because I see how in very key categories of my life, I do not live up to this description. In fact, I, I probably should have, you know, been wearing like hypocrite sign on my neck as I spoke. Uh, and maybe that's what we should call this rather than the love series, the hypocrite series, hypocrite preacher preaching a message on love to hypocrite listeners. Um, because it has been, and, and it's kind of the point though. It's, it's such a lofty, wonderful, beautiful description of the most wonderful virtue of all at its peak. What is agape love and what is it supposed to do? And of course, even the Apostle Paul didn't live up to the words that he himself wrote perfectly. Uh, but it's there to kind of inspire us and motivate us. It's kind of like that sign, the famous sign outside the locker room at the Notre Dame football stadium that at home games when, when, the, when the Notre Dame football team runs out of the locker room, they, they all slap this sign. And the sign says, play like a champion. They slap it and off out on the field that they go. Of course, they haven't very much lately. Uh, but I think that that's, that sign is there to inspire them to what they ought to be. And that's what this description is. It's there to inspire us 
to what we ought to be and to motivate us to look at our relationships and the way that we relate to one another and to say, are these things true? Because as God forms his character in me, he is love. Increasingly, I'm going to love the way that this has described for us. And so I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope it's inspired you. I hope it's transformed you because it most certainly has me. Well, we have said many times, what is love? Love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. It is others-oriented. It finds its joy in the other. It is the death of self, and it is the living for the goodness and the gladness of those in our life. And so one more time, let's see how Paul says this, and I'm just going to read it one last time. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not uh, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends, and we saw last week that it can't end because God is love and God is eternal, which means that love is eternal as well. It is rooted in the character of God. Love is the, is the core. The Bible says that God is, is merciful, God is gracious, but the one thing that it wants to say clearly is that God is agape, that God is love. As we finish the chapter today, it's vital that we remember what the context is here because we're going to finish the chapter today, okay? We went real slow through four verses, and now we're going to tackle, what, uh, five of them in one message. And critical to remember the context, Paul is writing to these uh, Corinthian Christians who essentially were uh, the antithesis of what this definition is describing about what love is. They... Uh, were basically selfish, self-oriented, and that created all kinds of problems in the church as they were seeing themselves as godly and mature and righteous and looking their nose down on other people in all kinds of categories, sexual, Christian liberty, the Lord's Supper, and especially in spiritual gifts, which Paul begins in chapter 12 here and carries all the way through chapter 14. Now, it's been a little while, but just to remind you what a spiritual gift is. It is a divine enablement given to every Christian by the Holy Spirit whose purpose is to serve and bless the church, the body of Christ. So if you're a Christian here today, you have at least one spiritual gift that God has called you to use for the good and the benefit of the church which is an exciting thing, and we've already talked about that when we preached through chapter 12. Some of these gifts, if you recall, as we looked at the list of them, some of them are more kind of behind the scenes, a little bit more service-oriented, not as noticeable. Some of them are public, and some of them are publicly dramatic. And it was those publicly dramatic gifts that were the source of so many of their problems because... That basic selfish orientation of the Corinthians 
made them want to uh, obsess over those gifts that were more spectacular and more dramatic. They coveted those gifts. They looked down on the other ones and they said, those gifts are the ones that really matter. And they falsely believed that spiritual gifts meant spiritual maturity. So if you had a publicly dramatic gift, they thought it meant that somehow you had advanced spiritually. And Paul, of course, has corrected that already in chapter 12 in saying that every gift is important, just like in the body, every part of the body is important. So we've covered that material already. We have, that's chapter 12. Then you have this beautiful agape description in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, Paul addresses very directly the uh, false use of those more dramatic and spectacular gifts, specifically prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now, I just wonder, is it a coincidence that between chapter 12 on spiritual gifts and chapter 14 on their abuse, you have this beautiful description of what love is all about? And I, of course, would say that is not a coincidence. That's by Paul's design and by the design of the Holy Spirit, because the Corinthians didn't need more gifts. They didn't need the exercise of more gifts. They needed more love. Love is the thing that is most important. And they had it all backwards. They thought gifts were more important. Paul says, listen, love is the most important thing. It's the greatest thing. And so that in that context, then, we come to verse 8, where he has just now talked about the permanence of love. Love never ends. And then he writes these words. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So the first thing now that Paul says is that realize spiritual gifts are temporary. They are going to pass away. And what was going on with the Corinthians is what we now call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of future things. An over-realized eschatology basically does this. It wants to pull into the present things that God has reserved for the future. In the Corinthians' mind, they looked at those dramatic, spectacular gifts, and they thought to themselves, surely this is, the, this is like heaven on earth. This is what heaven is all about. And it's not hard to see maybe how, especially with the gift of speaking in tongues, which is the ability to speak in a language not your own. They said, look at this. This is an amazing gift. Heaven has come down right here. And they thought... This must be what heaven is like. Now, Paul says that there is something in the church that is the life of heaven on earth. But you know what? It's not spiritual gifts. Any guesses what it might be? Hold that thought. We'll get to it. But we have a couple of issues that we need to deal with here. And uh, the first of those is this question. When then do spiritual gifts end? I mean, if he says here that they cease and they pass away, when do they do that? What is he talking about here? And we see that uh, in verse 8, he lists three gifts specifically. And these would probably be because these were the ones that were the more dramatic gifts that they were really focused on. Prophecy, speaking in tongues, and knowledge. 
So it says that prophecy and the gift of knowledge pass away. Tongues uses a slightly different word and says that they cease. The key to understanding this is really figuring out what in verse 9 is the perfect that's going to come. Because it says when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And clearly the partial that he's referring to are spiritual gifts, specifically the three that he's listed. So the big question then is, is what is the perfect and what then does that mean about when these gifts are no longer going to be um, active? And on this, there's basically three positions. And by the way, we'll get into the larger debate about this when we get into chapter 14. For now, I just want to deal with what this text is actually saying. Three basic positions on what the perfect is and then what it means about um, gifts. And specifically speaking in tongues, that's the one that creates the most uh, fervor. Um, here's the first position. Is that the perfect that comes is the canon of Scripture. So that once the canon of Scripture, the Bible, is complete, which of course is perfect, there's no debate about that, uh, then now uh, speaking in tongues is no longer needed because it's no longer needed to authenticate what is true and what is not. So that's the first position. Second is that the perfection is the fully mature church. Once the church is fully mature, then uh, these things would Cease. Now, I just got to tell you, I don't get that position at all. And part of the reason is, is that I work at a church, and it seems to me to believe that the church would ever be perfect or even close to mature is impossibly naive. Now, maybe it's just the church I work at. I don't know. <laughs> but we all know it's the pastor's fault because it's always the pastor's fault if there's a problem in the church. So I guess it just comes back to me then. Um, the third position is that the perfect is the future state of the church. And by that we mean really the things that are yet to come, the return of Christ, uh, judgment, final judgment, the new heaven, the new earth, the, the eternal state, that, that is the, that's the perfect. And so therefore then, if that's the perfect, these gifts would cease when we get to that point. Now, strong arguments are made about each of these positions and really a few more that you probably could come up with. And good people believe all three of these and disagree on this issue. I personally believe the third is the accurate one here. Uh, and it is, by the way, the majority view, the most common view. And there's, I believe this for a few reasons. For me, it's very hard to think that the Corinthians, when they read that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, that the Corinthians would have thought to themselves, oh, he obviously means the canon of Scripture. I mean, they wouldn't have thought that. It doesn't make sense that they would have come to that conclusion. So I don't think Paul would write that, at least without explaining what he meant. You know, there's... We're all, all these apostles are writing letters and it's all going to be accumulated together and they're going to decide, uh, by sovereign decree and some human means how and what is to be in the canon, la, 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 and they're going to call it the Bible. Okay? I don't see that happening. It doesn't make sense to me. The strongest argument, I think, for the third is just simply the context. Because if you look here, Paul goes on to talk about what that perfect perfect is going to be like and he says in verse 12 now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face so scripture being complete like it is right now is not that we're not in a face-to-face situation with god are we yet 
Not really. Now I can kind of, you know, the word of God's like a mirror and it sort of tells me, understand how God thinks about me. I see the character of God in here. But I wouldn't describe this as a face-to-face experience. What would be a face-to-face experience? Well, we know that Christ is coming back. And we know that for believers, we are going to be in a state someday where we are going to behold the glory of God. We're going to see him. Here's what 1 John 3 says. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Christian, realize there's coming a day when you are going to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that experience is not going to be clouded by any kind of confusion in my mind or my sin nature. There's not going to be a teacher there explaining, well, this is what this is and this is what this is. There'll be none of that. We will behold his face, mano a mano, nothing in between. There, the glory of God. The new heaven and the new earth will be perfection then in every way. We will be perfect, the Bible says, because we will have resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, with a capacity that we don't currently have. The new earth will be perfect. There will be no decay in it. There will be nothing bad in it. There will be no evil in it. It's going to be perfect. All the imperfect will pass away. The new heaven is going to be perfect. There's not going to be, there's no more war. There's no, Satan's in hell. Satan's in hell. His demons are in hell. In heaven, no more war. There is only peace and there is only perfection. Nothing in our future will be incomplete. There'll be nothing that we're waiting to kind of get there. There's no in process kind of thing. No one's going to say something like, well, we're hoping things improve. There'll be nothing to improve. It's going to be absolutely as great and perfect and beautiful and glorious and wonderful as it possibly can be. So how does that sound to you? Sounds pretty good to me. Sounds perfect. Which is why I look at this and I say, okay, well, then that must be when the spiritual gifts are going to pass away, when Christ returns and the perfection comes. Which leads to the second thing that Paul addresses here, and that is why? Why will spiritual gifts, almost by definition, have to pass away? And he uses an illustration, really two of them here. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So we we see here how spiritual gifts are described. They're called passing away, ceasing, partial twice, childish ways, clouded mirror. Now none of these are derogatory. Because spiritual gifts are wonderful and are vitally important. Paul's already made that clear. I mean, if we didn't have spiritual gifts, there would be no, we would have no ability to fulfill the Great Commission. We couldn't, we couldn't function as a body. We couldn't do anything. We would be like, we would just be like, you know, spiritual protoplasm without any muscles and no structure at all. Did that communicate well? Should I say at third service? 
We'd just be blobby, you know. We wouldn't have any capacity to do anything because doing things in the kingdom of God has to be spiritually enabled. And he has enabled us, the Holy Spirit, by giving gifts to the church. They are vitally important. They are wonderful. So he's not, he's not derogatory at all. What he is saying here is that they, when the perfect comes, they're just not going to be needed anymore. So therefore they are provisional. They are temporary. They're great for now, but they won't be needed then. And he illustrates this with a child. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. All right. Now let me, let me just illustrate this this way. And as I've been talking, I've been kind of looking around. Let's see here. Oh, yeah. This, oh, come, can we come all the way down here? Hey, you know what? I'm going to give you permission to do something really exciting. Only this one time. Would you stand up on the church chair? What do you think about that? Let's just stand up right there. Okay. All right. Now, what is your name? Hunter. Say that again. Hunter. Is that what you do for a living? No. No? Hunter? Okay. It might say something about what your dad likes to do, though, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Be glad he's not into flute. Uh, So how old are you, Hunter? Ten. Ten years old. Okay. That's double digits. It's exciting. So, all right. So um, are you excited about the coming week? Yes. And what are you excited about with the coming week? What's coming up? Christmas. Looking forward to Christmas? Yeah. What's your, like, what's your favorite part of Christmas? What do you like the most? Mm, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind about Christmas that might be exciting? <laughs> All right. Your dad says Christmas morning there might be something that you might like. Yes. And what would that be? Uh, presents. You're going to open some presents that day? Yes. And that's, ex- that's exciting to you. So what are you hoping, what are you, like, what's, what are you looking for, what, what's your, like, the thing that you circled in the Sears catalog and said, I hope to get this? A video game. You're wanting a video game. Anyone in particular? Is it about hunting? Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Okay. (laughs) So you're going to shoot people rather than animals. (laughs) All right. Would you say, though, that one of your most favorite things about Christmas is just the, you know, that sense of being with family and the, and the deeper meaning of, um, you know, kind of eternity and, um, the incarnation and that kind of thing. Is that exciting to you? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the right answer probably. Cause that's kind of the point that I'm making. So thank you, Hunter. That was great. Why don't you sit down there? Okay. Good job. Now, let's just say that, that, you know, Hunter gave his answer, and, and let's say that I, 
I come to his dad here and, and, and I say, hey, and he goes, hey, and I go, what are you looking forward to this week? And he goes, presents. <laughs> and I say, anyone in particular? And he, and he says, Call of Duty. <laughs> and I say, you know, wouldn't it be great to be with the family, though, and just, you know, have special memories and all that? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> we, we'd be like, okay, there's a little problem here, right? Because for Hunter... We totally get that, and we look back on those days, and we thought, those were wonderful days. I'd love to be 10 again. You enjoy it, okay? It's great. But in order to become a man, you have to put away childish things, right? Childish ways in order to become a fully mature man. And once you become a man, now those childish ways are not as needed and even as important. And that's exactly the point that Paul's making, and it's a really good illustration, don't you think? So... Spiritual gifts are like that. They're like, they're like the, the things that mark childhood, which are wonderful at their time, but they pass away. They're no longer needed. Although I do think his dad's probably excited about presents too. I know that I am. But the perfect hasn't come yet, so hey. <laughs> the second illustration is of a mirror. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And this is, uh, I mean, th- this is like Paul writing the church at Chicago and using a football illustration because Corinth was known for their mirrors. They were famous for their mirrors. And when you think mirror, ancient mirror, don't think like our mirror, the one you looked at hopefully this morning where you really can see things clearly. The ancient mirrors, they didn't, I read that I think those were, our mirrors were invented like in the 13th century. So they didn't have that kind of glass mirror. They would just take up almost like a metal plate and they would polish it and polish it and polish it and polish it and polish it to where you could kind of see your image in the mirror. But it, it wasn't that great, not that clear. Maybe uh, try this at lunch today. Take, take your spoon. And, and have you ever done this? Have you ever looked at yourself in the, in the spoon? Have you ever wondered why are you upside down when you look in the spoon? You've never wondered that? <laughs> Last night they thought that was great. Are they all ever... <laughs> Try it. Look in the spoon and, and you're upside down. But you can kind of see who it is, but it's all, it's all fuzzy. That's what Paul says. Now we're at the stage right now where our level of understanding and our ability to comprehend the, with clarity the glory of God and the deeper things of what God is doing, it's blurry to us. We're like, we're like looking in a polished metal mirror where we kind of discern things, but not with the clarity that we will someday. Friends, we are in a stage right now where we see some things. But we don't see those things even close to the clarity and the wonder that we will see them someday. Someday we will see God. And in that moment, there's going to be this dramatic theological, spiritual, experiential, wonderful transformation that we're going to have. Where we pass from this life where we're like, it's child's play to the next level where suddenly we're like PhD, you know, that's a good analogy, postdoctorate, whatever it is, we are going to know completely, it says here, someday face to face. Now, God the Father doesn't have a face, but Jesus does. 
Jesus does. And I think this is just referring to a, a kind of personal beholding of the burning, churning glory of God. The beatific vision, as the theologians call it. Someday we're going to see him face to face. A personal kind of seeing. The, the real deal. Do you remember in Exodus when, when uh, Moses wanted to see the face of God? Exodus 33. And he asked God, I want to I see your face. And God says this. He says, no man can see my face and live. Now what does that mean? We are human. We are, we are, we're, we're just, we're just human. Okay. We'll still be human, but we, at this point, we have sin natures. Our minds have fallen. Our capacity to get God, if you want to say it that way, is incredibly small. But someday after the resurrection, we're going to have this new body and this new mind and this new capacity to understand and apprehend spiritual truth that is far greater than what we have right now. And in that moment, suddenly with a new capacity, we are going to see God in all of his splendor and glory and have an ability to apprehend and appropriate who he is in ways that we have not even begun to understand now. And if we saw the glory of God now, we would die. Think of that. It's just, it blow too much for us. Okay? But not then. Not then. We'll be able to take Him in. And not understand Him fully. We'll never understand Him fully. But we will comprehend far greater than we do now. The actual glory and wonder of God. Think of it. We can't even see him face to face right now. But someday we will see him face to face. And that someday will never end. It is eternity. And so Paul writes here, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I mean, here, there's another marvel here. Think of it. The apostle Paul wrote this. Think of the spiritual privileges that the Apostle Paul had. Comes to faith in Christ by seeing a vision on the road to Damascus of the actual risen Christ. Is given a tremendous amount of understanding such that he writes the book of Romans, which is the greatest theological treatise in the entire Bible. I mean, he understood God in ways perhaps unique in all of human history. This is a man who God took to the third heaven, who heard and saw things that he couldn't even put in words. The guy that had all of that writes this and says, I know this much. I just know it a little bit. But someday I will know it in its fullness. I will know him in his fullness. We're like in kindergarten. Okay? The the most spiritually insightful person in our whole church is like, you know, a third day kindergarten student. Here we are now, we're, we're, you know, we're Play-Doh and finger painting, and, and that's great. Nothing wrong with kindergarten. I love kindergarten. But woe to us if we think that we've got it figured out, or even have really begun to understand very much at all. Now, what we know is true. I'm not saying that at all. God has revealed truthfully to us. But he is so much more than we even begin to understand. And if he even tried to tell us, we'd die. I mean, we're like in kindergarten. We're, we're A, B, C, 
H I I mean that's us. You know, one plus one plus one equals one. That's the Trinity. And we don't even get that. But someday we will know fully. Someday we will understand in fullness, even as we are fully known by God. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be omniscient because only God is omniscient. But the fullness of our human capacity to understand God will be complete. There will not be pastors or teachers in heaven. There'll be no need for somebody to be going, now let me explain God to you. You're like, why are we listen to you? He's right here. I don't need you to explain this to me anymore. We're not going to need gifts of prophecy or knowledge. They're, they're just going to, they're just going to pass away. They're provisional for this age and this age alone. So that even the very best church with the most vibrant gifts being used and fully functional is still a kindergarten class. So what I want to say is for every true believer in Christ, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We haven't even started hardly. And what's to come is glorious. So... If spiritual gifts don't last, then what does? I mean, does anything last? Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because it is the foundation of all the other virtues. Everything that is good finds its source in agape love. And it lasts the longest because it is grounded in the character of God. And God is eternal. God is love. So therefore, love lasts the longest. It is permanent. There will not be spiritual gifts in eternity, friends. But love will be the dominant quality of our existence. Think of this. What is eternity going to be like? It is going to be God's love, infinite supply, flowing out to us. Jonathan Edwards describes it like rivers flowing into the ocean, just never ending God's love being poured out towards us. And we now, without our sin nature and without all the things that cloud us, are going to reflect that love back to him for eternity. And we're not talking about the shallow kind of love, in it for me kind of love. We're talking about agape kind of love self-giving for the good and joy of another. God in heaven is going to be there wanting to produce joy and gladness in us. And we will respond to him with a kind of adoration that wants to bless his name. And that's just going to keep going on and on and on. What kind of love will it be? As we've seen here, total patience. Total patience. Think of it. Our love to God, our love to one another, it's going to be perfect. Perfect. Our love for one another in eternity is going to be absolutely kind. No envying. No boasting. No arrogance. No one being rude. No one insisting on their way. No uh, irritation. No resentment of one another. There's not going to be any wrongdoing, just always celebrating the truth doing. 
There will be nothing to bear with in each other because we're all going to be perfect. We will trust fully. And this kind of relationship will go on forever and ever and ever in absolute perfection. And that's why I say, friends, the best is yet to come. That is what's waiting us. That's the completion. That's the perfect. And I need to say right now, this is true for believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you are not a follower of Christ, then this is not true of you. In fact, the opposite is what the Bible says is true for you. And the opposite of that is the absent of, absence of all love. The absence of all collegial relationships. The absence of all goodness. The absence of loveliness. The absence of, of anything beautiful. The Bible describes it as a place called hell. And maybe a message on love's eternal significance might draw you to believing in Christ as your Savior who displayed this kind of love when He died on the cross for you. You don't merit it. You don't earn it. Just like you don't with your mother's love, it's provided from a a loving God. You simply receive it and you believe. And what a great thing that would be for you today to believe and to trust that you might experience this perfection that the Bible talks about. And friends, here's the beauty of this. We have this wonderful love for God and, and our, our love, uh, His love to us and our love to Him. But do you realize what love's permanence means in terms of our human relationships? Every human relationship that is marked by the gospel, that is an agape love relationship, will never end. That means that all Christian love between Christian spouses will last forever. The love between uh, Christian friends will last forever. The love between Christian siblings will last forever. The love between Christians in a local church like ours will last forever. Love is the greatest because love lasts the longest the longest and it means that in christ all these relationships even the ones that we treasure right now when marked by the gospel and agape love will never end praise god (laughs) i remember hearing pastor erwin lutzer i was at an event and there was a uh they they honored a woman at this event she and her husband, they'd been in ministry for like 50 years, and he had just died. And so they kind of gave her the honor somewhat, you know, posthumously, I think is how you say that. And she, you know, she was kind of frail, and, and people, we all stood and clapped for her. And you could just tell she was kind of overwhelmed by the moment and the loss of her husband and just what the whole thing meant. And, and she kind of went down, and then Pastor Lutzer got up. And he says, ma'am, I want to tell you, he still loves you. He's thinking about you. He remembers everything about your life together. And he can't wait to see you. It was a powerful moment. But it's true. Love never ends. Which means that if I would have died in that car accident last Sunday night, you know what would have lasted in me? 
My sermons wouldn't have lasted. Now, some of you probably played the tape a little bit and remember me and all that. Next pastor comes. Remember Pastor Steve? Oh, yeah, I remember him a little bit. Uh, a little bit of that going on maybe, I hope, just maybe a week or two. Uh, <laughs> my sermons wouldn't last. My, my, the books in my library, they wouldn't last. My house wouldn't last. My clothes wouldn't last. My car certainly didn't last. You saw the picture. None of these things would last, but what would last? I'll tell you what would last. My relationship with my parents would last because they are Christians and we love one another. And my relationship with my siblings would last because they too are followers of Christ and we love one another. And it means that my relationship with you would last because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and love never ends. It can't because God is love. Richard Baxter, Baxter, 300 years ago, in his covenant vows to his wife, April 10th, 1660, he said this, My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim, but it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Indeed, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Amen.